Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, the first highlights on this edition of the podcast are from Dr. Rick Sacra. He serves in Liberia with the missions organization SIM. You may remember he contracted Ebola in 2014, was returned to the U.S. for treatment, then went back to Liberia. You can revisit his amazing story of God's faithfulness. Then meet attorney and author Jennifer Amidiegu, who for quite some time has had a heart for mentoring ladies. She incorporates ideas about strong women and strong marriages into a book of letters that she has crafted. Plus, Shannon Perry is an author, singer, and media host who discusses how to appropriate God's strength, especially when faced with difficult people or circumstances. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, it's Scott Kadersha. He's helped literally thousands of couples as they prepare for marriage and offers some components about how marriages can be built on a strong foundation of Christ's principles. Also, there seems to have been a renewed concentration on matters concerning the environment in the midst of discussions of climate change and demanding that taxpayers fund massive new environmental programs. It's important to gain and maintain a biblical perspective. Help is on the way from Calvin Beisner of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. Finally, it's author Sarah Beckman, who provides insight into enduring difficult circumstances, as well as ministering to those who are facing trouble in their lives. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Dr. Rick Sacra has a heart for the people of Liberia. While they were suffering during an Ebola outbreak back in 2014, he tended to their medical needs and contracted the virus himself. After being treated in the U.S., he went back to the nation and continues to work there today. Plus, he's involved in training more doctors in the country. He's with the missions organization SIM and recently received the prestigious 2018 Gerson Laheim Prize, which includes an award of $500,000, which will help to build an intensive care unit in a local hospital and to train new doctors. From a recent conversation, here is Rick Sacra. I praise God. I really... Uh got to understand uh, the strength of the rock, uh, the rock of our faith that we stand on. You know, I've been a Christian since I was a little kid, but I don't think I'd ever been through a, a real test of my faith. And it was very comforting to know that uh, when I needed God, he was there. Um, you know, really uh, just praying the Lord's Prayer every day and uh, reading the Psalms and just receiving that comfort and that insurance. And frankly, it was just God letting me know that uh, if I didn't survive, if I didn't make it through Ebola, he'd take care of my family. He'd take care of ELWA hospital uh, and I would be with him. And there was a great uh, peace in, in knowing that. Um, but I'm very grateful for the, the staff here. I was admitted to the Ebola treatment unit here at ELWA for about three days, and they took good care of me, gave me IV fluids and medications. Um, my Liberian colleagues, uh, you know, having to take care of their one of their doctors. Uh, and then three days later, I was uh, uh, flown out on a special air ambulance to Nebraska, uh, where I was treated at the Nebraska Medical Center for about three weeks. And uh, an amazing team there, really wonderful team of people um, who took care of me and got me got me through uh, with God's help. So uh, 
Well, and following that time of treatment, you made the decision to go back to Liberia, back into a country that had been ravaged by this Ebola epidemic. So talk about what contributed to that decision to return. Well, well, I have to tell you that by the time I was turning the corner, you know, about 10 days into my hospital stay when it was looking like I was going to make it, I was getting better. I mean, that was the first thing on my mind was, hmm, I wonder how long it'll be before I can travel back to Liberia and help out. Uh, you know, these I've been here for 20 years. These are my adopted uh, family and my adopted home, really. I, I just I, mean, I just love uh, the people of, of this community. And so the idea of, of staying away uh, well, didn't even enter my mind. And, and after all, by then I was immune to the Ebola virus, so uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't get it again. So mm. um, it didn't even have the, the risk attached to it so much. So it was, uh, it was an easy decision to make, and, and uh, I was just counting the days once I got out of the hospital till, wow. till I got my strength back. So it's, it's one and done, basically. Once you have it, you can't contract it again then? That that's my understanding. Wow! Just like just like the chickenpox. So, how is it that you treat Ebola? Well, now at the, at the time when I was getting treated, uh, you know the the central core aspect of it is simply what we call supportive care. So it's um, you know giving IV fluids, measuring the blood level, transfusing if it if there's a need for a transfusion. Um, measuring electrolytes like potassium and magnesium and replacing those when they're lost. Because people with Ebola are, are having a lot of uh, GI symptoms, uh, vomiting and diarrhea, and they lose a lot of um, those electrolytes. So that's really the core of it. And then there have been various attempts to use different treatments, uh, mainly antibody-based things, things that are you know, taken from someone else who has successfully fought off the virus and either either just taking that person's plasma. I received a donation of plasma from Kent Brantley, uh, my colleague who had survived, um, or other types of antibody treatments. That's the, that's the experimental part of it that, that they're still trying to figure out if it'll work or not. Rick Sacra here on The Intersection. You can learn more about the ministry by going to simusa.org. Well, wife, mother, attorney, and author Jennifer Amidiegu discussed principles of the Christian life oriented toward women with me recently as she relates in her book, Letters to Her, Becoming a Woman of Purity, Purpose, and Proverbs 31 Virtue. Here now is Jennifer Amidiegu. It was just really important for me to, to give back to um, young girls much like myself. I grew up in uh, Detroit, grew up in the inner city, um, but was very fortunate to have um, a strong family unit. Um, my parents sent me to a Christian private school, and then I went on to a college preparatory school. And so despite um, seeing a lot of adversity in the inner city, in the urban environment of Detroit, I had some really solid anchors um, and, and great parents and a great church community, um, you know, after school activities. And so, you know, 
being able to go to a college prep high school and graduate as valedictorian and go on to University of Michigan with a full ride, um, it just was something that resonated deeply within me to, to look back and to give back to young girls coming behind me. Um, and so we particularly focused on at-risk youth, um, uh, children uh, that were uh, about sixth grade uh, through 12th grade, um, to, to provide an opportunity for them to have positive role models um, field trips, um, and, and to have learning workshops on etiquette, hygiene, how to interview, uh, preparing for college, things of that sort. Um, and it was just really something that was important and dear to my heart, even as a college student. This book um, very much so is an outgrowth of that ministry um, experience that I had, and then also my personal journey of preparing for marriage and, and navigating high school and college and just becoming a young woman and, and growing into my own sense of identity as, you know, God, what are you calling me to be and, and to do? Um, and so in, in, in large part, it's um, an outgrowth of that ministry, but it's also a reflection of some of the key lessons that I learned in preparing for marriage. And you address, as I understand it, the the different sections of the book in a in a format that are well, as the title implies, are letters. They're addressed to beloved sister, and so this whole concept, the structure of actually using letters. How did you come to actually structure it in that way? To me, letters convey a more personal and intimate touch. Um, that I'm speaking directly to the reader, not, you know, a, a, a large group of women or a generic audience, but the very person holding the book. Um, and, and, and that is deep and, and moving and, and just more of a personal touch. And that is what I really sought to capture by formatting the book that way. Well, give us an idea. As you mentioned, there there were elements of preparing for various stages of life. What are some of the principles that you have found and you wanted to communicate in this book? Sure. Um, let's see. I guess one key um, key lesson that stands out to me um, relates to submission. Um, that's that that word can seem very archaic. Um, and, um, you know, it's just not something that popular culture is promoting, but it's one of those truths that it's, it's biblical and it's, and it's a, a foundational thing. And when, when one is preparing for marriage and, and just understanding that in order to be successful in marriage, it's not only, it, it, it doesn't start with submitting to one's husband as a wife, but it starts with submitting to God. And uh, whether we're men or women, we, we need to come into that right relationship with Christ and learn that when we submit to God, when we, you know, lay aside our own thoughts and, you know, and ideas, but really, you know, Lord, what what is it that you have for me to do? What is it that you're calling me to do? And really, um, you know, submit our lives to his will and, 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 um, and, and to build our lives on his word, we're positioning ourselves for um, success in life as well as success in marriage. And, and, and it translates so directly. Um, and that's just one thing that I wanted to illuminate. Um, there are so many things you can talk about with marriage, and, you know, communication and intimacy and raising kids and all of those sorts of things. But the, the key thing that, that God really put on my heart was to illuminate this concept of submission and that it's timeless and it's 
it still matters and it still works and and um, it's important even more so today than ever. Jennifer Amidiegu here on the intersection. You can learn more through the website letters to her dot org. Next up, it's author, speaker, singer, and media host Shannon Perry, who discussed some of the subject matter in her book, Grace and Guts, Strategies for Living a Knockout Life. She discussed some life experiences over the past few years and shared about some of the songs on her music album, In Her Shoes. Now from that recent conversation, this is Shannon Perry. In the book, I talk about the controller Uh, the blamer, the bully, the naysayers, the prideful, the victim. Now, the victim is one who they haven't been truly victimized, but they are needy and will tell you uh, how they've been done wrong as long as you'll listen. Uh, Talk about the abuser, the addict. A lot of uh, us, what I have found, Bob, is that a lot of us as Christians, we either love someone who is addicted or we even have an addiction ourselves. I know you mentioned the, the TV show, Grace in High Heels, and um, I got a letter not too long ago from a nurse uh, who said, I'm a Christian and I watch your show, but I, I have been addicted to over-the-counter, prescri- or not over-the-counter, but I had been addicted to prescription drugs. And um, I've actually been getting them, you know, from doctors. And she said, I need deliverance from that. And a lot of times people are not comfortable going to church and talking about those kind of things because they're afraid of being judged. But God's Word is very clear about how to overcome addiction and how to deal with an addict if you love someone who is an addict. So I um, actually wrote a whole chapter on addiction. I also covered the gossip. And the gossip loves to uh, gain information about people and then just tear their lives apart with it. So not only Mm. do I talk about what difficult people are, I also talk about some of the ways that we can conquer difficult people, whether it's at work, uh, whether it's in our own family, um, and and just give some strategies for that. Things, for example, like if you're dealing with somebody in your, in your family that's difficult, uh, remember your difficult person is loved by and created by God, but so are you. So begin to refuse that disrespect, and I talk about how to do that, and I back that up with Scripture, establishing consequences for people when they treat us in ways that are unloving or unkind. While the Bible commands us to love people, it never commands us to be a doormat. And so we have to know how to have that healthy balance of how to love people and And the best thing that we can do a lot of times for our family members who are difficult is to establish those boundaries and those consequences with them because that is showing them, I love you enough to hold you accountable because that's what God's Word does. It holds us accountable. And so those are just some of the things. There was a lot more in the book that I cover. Have you found that there may be a a key that is particularly uh, germane to the workplace that people might could apply? I cover that in the book, of course, and talk a lot about that. But there is one that I have found that people have actually come to me. Uh, The book has been pre-released at some of my conferences. We have a Grace and Guts conference uh, that I look forward to telling you about in a minute. But a lot of people have come to me and said there's one topic that they really honed in on, because a lot of people do face difficult people at work, and that was just taking the emotion out of your reaction so many times, difficult coworkers. We spend more of our time at work if we have a if we work outside of the home than we do in our home most of the time. And so, to just know how to take the emotion out of our reaction to people around us is very powerful. Um, and knowing how to put distance between you and your difficult coworker at work uh, is important. Not. And, and one more thing I want to say, Bob, 
is I stress in the book as well. A lot of times when it's hard, we just want to jump out of our job and go get another one. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes God is using those very difficult people, even (laughs) though they really rock our nerves. That's the people he's using to help elevate us to the next level. Sometimes he's watching how we handle those difficult people and how we control ourselves around them because they know our hot buttons. And here's the thing I want our listeners to remember today. There's been someone studying you since you were born, and he knows your hot buttons, and that's the enemy of our soul. And Mm -hmm. he knows what triggers you. He knows what hurts you. He knows what makes you feel isolated. He knows what makes you feel like you don't belong. And so every time we emotionally lose it, so to speak, over the things that difficult people do to us, he takes note of that. And it's kind of like he just takes a little arrow and puts it in his backpack and says, hey, there's one I can shoot at him later. And when the time comes and a lot of difficult people, what they know how to do is is hone in on us when we are weak. He takes that arrow out and goes, here's somebody I can use. And he fires that arrow right at our heart. And so we've got to remember the truth of God's word about who we are when we're dealing with difficult people in the workplace and what the Bible says about us, because the minute we get our eyes focused on what people think and what people are doing instead of what God thinks and what he can do, that's when we start getting into trouble. So that's another thing that I talk about in the book. Shannon Perry here on The Intersection. Her website address is shannonperry.com. Well, you are listening to The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more through meetinghouseonline.info or through the programming section at faithradio.org. The Intersection Podcast is available through the Faith Radio app. You can learn more about downloading it for your smartphone or tablet through the Faith Radio website. At the Meeting House homepage, you will find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured here on the Intersection Podcast. Also, when you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link through which you can subscribe to the Intersection Podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. And there are two blogs that are accessible. One is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. The other is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. And you can follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, there is a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Well, continuing with this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Scott Kadersha. In our recent conversation, he talked about biblical principles upon which to build a strong marriage. He's the author of a book called Ready or Not, that is spelled K-N-O-T, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage is the subtitle. Here now is Scott Kadersha. Any couple who shows any sign of humility is a really good plus in the, in the win column for a couple who's going to do well. So that, you know, that meaning that they're open, they're teachable, they see where they fall short, they see the value of being able to hear from their significant other. And so any, anyone who's married knows that you're going you're gonna to let your significant other down. You're going to let your spouse down. And the, the couples who do well are the ones who are willing to hear and to listen, even if they might not necessarily agree with their spouse. But a couple who says, you know, I, I know that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so I want to be really humble in the feedback I get from my spouse or from other people in life. The flip side of that would be those couples who are prideful, who are unteachable, who, 
Yeah, well, one of the things I hear that, that's a big concern in our primary class is when a couple goes through the eight weeks and they get to the end of them and they say, well, I really didn't learn anything new over the last mm-hmm. eight weeks. And, and I kind of, that's when I shake my head because they go, I've been married for 17 and a half years, been doing full-time pre-married and newly married ministry for 12 and a half, 13 years. And I learned something every week in that class, even though I've been in there so many times. And so that lack of humility or pride. And then another one I'd say is just, you know, what do you, uh, do you open your life up to the input of others and community? So do you let people sharpen you, you know, Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. do you let people lovingly wound you 27 Proverbs 27, six, are you someone who, uh, who uh, encourages others, you know, Proverbs twenty five eleven, that you uh, see where someone has a need and you're encouraging them in those needs. And so realizing the value of community, the one who walks with the wise grows wise. The companion of fools will suffer harm, Proverbs thirteen twenty, And so just the couples who will invite community in tend to do really well in marriage. Well, let's talk about some of the struggles that you have seen. What do you feel like after a couple is married? What are some of the most common struggles that Christian couples face, and and what are some of the root causes as you see it? That's good. So I remember reading this years ago that uh, one of the highest years of divorce is, you know, we always hear year seven, the seven-year itch. We hear when they're empty nesters, the, the year that's often the, the highest year is actually year one or year two of marriage. And that's often because like they come into marriage with these expectations with such rose colored glasses on the pre-married side. And all they care about is the wedding day. I want to have a great wedding day and the wedding day and the wedding day and the wedding day. There's nothing wrong with a great wedding day unless it's at the expense of a great marriage. And so couples come in with these rose colored glasses and you know, I've heard this so many times over the years that the first argument they get into as a married couple doesn't come weeks down the road. It comes like the the day of their honeymoon, the first day, because the, the glasses have come off and they realize, hey, this is this is kind of what real life is going to look like. And so it's the whole idea that, you know, conflict is not like disagreements are not a sign that a couple should not get married. Conflict is inevitable. And so we've got to learn how to deal with the disagreements, the disappointments, when our expectations aren't met, when our spouse's expectations aren't met. That doesn't mean we get an exit from the relationship. It means we need to hunker down and start doing some really hard work because that, that's what your future holds as a married couple is, is one unmet expectation after another. And that, that doesn't mean you made the wrong choice. It means you're a human being married to another, another mm. human being. <laughs> yeah. And selfishness gets in the way, and conflict is absolutely inevitable. Scott Kadersha here on The Intersection. You can find out more by visiting the website Scott Kadersha. That's K-E-D-E-R-S-H-A dot com. Next up, it's Calvin Beisner. He is founder, president, and board chairman of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation. In a recent conversation, he presented a biblical response to current environmental issues, including climate change policies and proposed legislation to increase taxes to support green initiatives. Here now from that conversation is Calvin Beisner. They exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. And that results in the worship of a false god. 
So uh, this is what really lies at the root of all the different radical environmentalist streams of thought. And in all of them, what we get is a degrading of humanity, seeing people primarily as polluters and consumers, using up Earth's resources and poisoning the planet in the process, rather than as producers and stewards made in the image of God. We also see a deifying of nature, portraying nature in its untouched state as the ideal. Therefore, this rejects the notion of human improvement and stewardship of nature, and it completely ignores the fact that although God did indeed, in Genesis 1, call his creation good, in Genesis 3, he cursed the earth because of man's sin and made it subject to decay. And the, the uh, redeeming work of Christ through his incarnation, death, and resurrection uh, has uh, as part of its aim the restoration of the created order. And then finally also, these false religions of radical environmentalism tend to, as we've said, disregard the poor. No matter how well-intentioned they may, they may be, environmental policies that are not based on sound theology, science, and economics will have their most devastating impact on the people who can afford it the least, the poor in America and all around the world. We recognize as we read uh, the publications of radical environmentalists, as we look at their policies and so on, that the radical environmentalist movement is really the face of the anti-human pro-death agenda. It is uh, coupled strongly with the population control movement, which warns of overpopulation uh, on the ground that uh, population grows exponentially, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, etc., whereas uh, food supplies only grow arithmetically, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, etc. And obviously, exponential growth outpaces uh, arithmetic growth. The problem with that, of course, is that it ignores the fact that it's human beings who produce the food, and on average they produce far more than they need for themselves. Uh, this is why uh, one American farmer feeds over 70 people around the world. Uh, this is, this is the, the, the case. Um, the strident environmentalist opposition to modern methods of energy production, agriculture, and disease prevention, coupled with policies that strangle economic growth, contributes to the deaths of millions of impoverished people around the world. Uh, one example of that is uh, that in the United States, we've had a policy of subsidizing uh, the production of ethanol from corn uh, for uh, going on 20 years now. And one major study published seven years ago found that the result of that policy is higher grain prices around the world that contribute to about 200,000 extra excess premature deaths every year among the poor around the world. Uh, and, you know, radical environmentalists are willing to do this because they think that the world is getting overpopulated. Comment on what you are seeing with respect to this radical environmentalist view infiltrating the church and really what can be done as far as sharing the truth about what the Bible has to say about the environment. Yeah. Well, you know, before we went on the air, uh, Bob, you and I were talking about the Evangelical Environmental Network and the Young Evangelicals for uh, Climate Action. 
Uh, and I pointed out to the Evangelical Environmental Network, which is the parent organization of Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, is itself a part of the National Religious Partnership on the Environment, which was founded by uh, a New Ager Episcopal priest, uh, uh, James Parks Morton, who was the dean of the uh, Episcopal St. John, uh, Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City, and Carl Sagan, the atheist Marxist physicist, uh, or, uh, uh, astronomer, by the way, uh, who did the famous uh, TBS program Cosmos, which always began by saying the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Uh, these two guys, not by any means uh, orthodox Christians, uh, evangelical Christians, started this National Religious Partnership for the Environment, and the Evangelical Environmental Network is the evangelical uh, wing of that. Cal Beisner here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website cornwallalliance.org. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's author and speaker Sarah Beckman. She shared from her own experience about trusting the Lord during difficult times and reaching out to minister to others in their struggles. She's the author of the book, Hope in the Hard Places, How to Survive When Your World Feels Out of Control. Here now is Sarah Beckman. The terrain, I feel like before I do any sort of journey, I want to know what what place I'm in and where I'm at and kind of get the lay of the land. And so the terrain section of the book is five chapters that kind of give us the big picture. Um, And I have favorite chapters, but one of my favorite chapters is called Scene. And we really discuss this notion of God seeing us despite how difficult our hardship is, that he really is looking and seeing and recognizing us. And this notion was probably, it was the first chapter I wrote, actually, even though it doesn't come first, because it just was so important to me to convey to the reader that not only do I see their pain, but God is watching. He sees it. And even if it can't be removed at this moment, he sees you and he wants to be the lifter of your head, so to speak. Uh, so the first you know, five chapters terrain is that overview, some powerful chapters about the questions we ask and the lay of the land. Then the second one is uh, preparation. And that for me is about what what we take along with us. So it talks about the people that come alongside us in our journey and the roles that people can play and the mindset that we're going to take. So again, just still getting ready, but in a little bit more finite level. And then um, journey is really the bulk of the book and encompasses the most amount of chapters, but it's about the nuts and bolts of what happens along the way. You know, the asking and receiving help, the boulders that can stand in our way, the um, gratitude that we need to look for along the way. And then the fourth uh, section is actually just very short. And for me is the crux of the whole matter, which is essentially no matter what we're facing, even if the worst case scenario happens, um, we want to we want to run the race well. We want to journey well. We want to finish well. If the situation is a situation where we're terminal, um, but even if the worst case happens, we're still going to be okay. Um, so that's sort of that that closing section. Mm. Well, I think about that passage in James about the trying of our faith, bringing patience, and even though we may not know the destination. 
we know that God does. In fact, God is with us throughout our journey, throughout all four of these different components that you've just outlined. And in the midst of your your hard times, what did you find from from a biblical standpoint were some of the ways that that God was showing you more about himself? Oh, I, you know, so many places in my life where I have felt alone or isolated or, you know, even depression, you know, after I had a spinal fusion surgery, um, and was laid up for three months and basically an innocent bystander in my life. I couldn't lift anything or do the normal things. And that, you know, that is maybe a small scale trial compared to what some of our, you know, your listeners might be facing. But in it all, I realized that God is always right there, ready for me to talk to him, to, to seek him, to find comfort in his word, to trust the biblical truths that he portrays in his word. And oftentimes when things are going really well, I'm not seeking and looking and asking and searching so much as I am when I'm in the middle of the very hard things. And what gets me through the most is knowing that he's unchanging. Whether I change or not, he he doesn't change. He's always so stalwart, faithful, steady, ever-present. Uh, so I, I really cling to the character of who God is, unchanging, despite my circumstance. And then I usually have found one core truth that I cling to. Sarah Beckman here on The Intersection. You can learn more by going to the website, Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, Beckman.org. We're nearing the conclusion of this week's edition of the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can visit the programming section at faithradio.org. The Intersection is also available through the Faith Radio app. Learn more about downloading the app free for your smartphone or tablet by going to the website faithradio.org. Also, through the Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests on the Intersection podcast. You can also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. And there are links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. Plus, You can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and there is a link to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or go to faithradio.org and visit the programming section. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.